0: It's your love that makes me sick On behalf of Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Uh, You may be seated. We're going to begin, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, our expositional study of the book of James. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're going to take communion this morning. And so the elders suggested that it might be good to teach on that subject. It's been uh, some time uh, since we have. And so that's what we're going to do this morning, teach uh, on the subject of uh, communion, uh, see what the Scriptures have to say, and then we're going to celebrate communion together. So if you'll take your Bibles now and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as you're turning there, let me just... uh, give a few opening remarks. As you know, the church at Corinth was a church full of problems. There were cliques, you know, factions within the church, and so there was division as a result. They were tolerating sexual immorality in the church, specifically an incestuous relationship. A man was sleeping with his stepmother. They were suing one another rather than settling the issues between themselves. They were dragging one another into pagan courts before pagan judges. And and it was a reproach upon the name of Christ and, and upon the church. There were also problems in their public worship. They were abusing the gifts of the Spirit. They were also abusing the Lord's Supper, which is what Paul deals with in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And that's the context of the verses we're looking at this morning. Paul is writing to correct the abuses and to give them instruction as to how they were to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so if you'll stand with me as I read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'm going to be reading verses 23 through 32. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 32. For I received from the Lord that what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. May the Lord bless this reading of his word. You may be seated. In the early church, before they celebrated the Lord's Supper, it was their custom for the church to gather together for what was called an agape feast or a love feast. And basically, it was a potluck type of meal where everyone who was able brought food and and wine to share with everyone else, and it was intended to be this wonderful time of fellowship where everyone would sit down and enjoy a meal together. And it was an opportunity for fellowship and, and for showing love for one another by sharing with those in the congregation who were less privileged. And the church was strengthened by this. You know, as the people got to know one another better, they, they could truly bear one another's burdens and be, be made aware of various needs for ministry. It was also a demonstration to the world of how the love of Christ transcended social and racial distinctions and could bring together as one body people from diverse backgrounds and, and all walks of life. You could say it was a living illustration of the unity and the oneness of the body of Christ. And it was the perfect prelude to the celebration of the Lord's Supper. But at Corinth, as most of you know, what should have been a time of fellowship in Christ had deteriorated into something that was fracturing the church and hurting the witness of the entire congregation. The more affluent who... Uh, who brought all of this delicious food and wine apparently arrived early, and and rather than waiting for the members who had to work all day long, they ate the food they brought and and drank too much wine. So by the time the poor members of the church arrived who didn't have much to contribute, the dishes on the serving table were empty. The poor members who, who needed a good meal remained hungry while others sat around so you know, glutted, that their their belts were unbuckled, and they were intoxicated and ready for a nap. And what was to be a time of fellowship and sharing had turned into a gluttonous, drunken feast that resembled the pagan feast that they used to participate in. And the whole thing was obviously wrong, especially because they went straight from this so-called love feast to celebrate communion. And to follow this lack of regard for one another, this abuse of Christian love and unity with the celebration of communion, was to mock the celebration. In fact, they had turned the love feast into what they had turned the love feast into was so offensive to God that he disciplined some of the Corinthians with sickness and some even with death. That's how serious the Lord took them. I mean, their selfishness, their divisiveness, their tolerating of sin. These things were totally opposite of the grace and unity made available through the cross and the impartiality of God's love. I mean, there was no love in their love feast. In fact, there was sin at the Lord's Supper. And so in this last part of chapter 11, Paul is seeking to correct the Corinthians' abuses of the love feast and the communion service. And he does three things to correct this problem. In verses 17 to 22, which we're not looking at this morning, Paul gives them some constructive criticism and ends in verse 22 with a rebuke. And then he turns from that in verses 23 to 26 to give some corrective instruction. And then in verses 27 to 32, he gives them a sober warning. And we're going to give most of our attention this morning to verses 23 to 32, in fact, focusing mostly on verses 23 to 26, because it's here that we learned what coming together to celebrate communion is all about. But before we get into the actual text, let's talk for a moment about what communion is. The Lord's Supper or communion is when we as God's people gather together in obedience to the command of the Lord Jesus to celebrate his substitutionary atoning death and the salvation it provides for all who by grace through faith have trusted in him alone. And the communion service is one of obedience to our Lord. It's, It's one of remembering him, worshiping him, and fellowshipping with him and with his people. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, certain symbolic elements are used. Bread, or uh, today a wafer, some use a cracker. These symbolize Jesus' body given in death upon the cross. And then wine, or uh, for us grape juice, symbolizes His blood shed for our sins. And when we take these symbolic elements and, and eat them in the communion service, it represents our personal participation in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Well, how did this celebration of communion even come about? Well, it was Jesus himself who instituted the Lord's Supper. The night before he was to die on the cross, our Lord met with his disciples in the upper room to eat the Passover meal. And the timing of this was not an accident. But rather, it was an essential part of God's eternal plan. Throughout the Gospels, we find Jesus telling his disciples that his time had not yet come. And of course, he was referring to the time when he would die for the sins of the world. And so it was not mere circumstances that set the time, but God himself. And that time was to be at the Passover feast. And the reason for this is clearly expressed by the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, where he writes, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul is saying there that the Old Testament event of the Passover, when God spared His people from judgment and delivered them from bondage in Egypt, was a God-given picture of the meaning of the death of Jesus. At the first Passover, as you know, a lamb, which had to be without blemish or defect, was sacrificed in every Jewish home, and its blood sprinkled on the doorposts and lentils of those homes. And when the Lord passed through Egypt that night in judgment, killing all of the firstborn of, of the land of Egypt, he passed over those houses where he saw the blood of the lamb, and th- their children alone were spared. I mean, in effect, the Lamb had died as a substitute for the Jewish firstborn. And in the same way, Jesus, the Lamb of God who shed His blood and died to deliver us, uh, He delivered us from God's death penalty upon sin. And so the first celebration of the Lord's Supper took place during the Passover meal. Of course, tradition calls it the Last Supper, but in reality, it was the first. And at the table during that first Lord's Supper, Jesus said to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And during the Passover meal, the people would eat from three cakes of unleavened bread, and they would drink from four cups of wine. And Jesus used these things, which were well known to his disciples, as symbols of the meaning of his impending death. Now, the institution of the Lord's Supper is recorded in Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 to 30, in Mark chapter 14, verses 12 to 16, and Luke chapter 22, verses 7 to 23. But the fullest account is given by the Apostle Paul here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uh, refers to it as the Lord's Supper in verse 20. But this is not the only term used in the New Testament to describe it. It's called the breaking of bread in Acts 2.42. It's called the table of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10.21, of the Lord's table in the New King James. And in some translations, it is called communion in 1 Corinthians 10.16. And so we may use any of these names and be perfectly biblical. Later in church history, it was called the Eucharist, which simply means thanksgiving. But this word has been adopted by those churches which wrongly teach that the bread and wine in some way become the literal body and blood of Christ. And so this is a term that most evangelicals will avoid using. And you say, well, what is the significance of the different names? Well, the term the Lord's Table speaks of grace, God's free, abundant giving. It speaks of God's hospitality toward undeserving sinners. And really it's the same picture given to us in the parable of the Great Supper in Luke chapter 14 verses 16 through 24. And you remember that account. It was was the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind who sat down to the Great Supper prepared by the Master. And so it is with the Lord Jesus Christ because He didn't come to call the righteous but rather sinners to repentance. And what a feast of love and And mercy He provides for those who have put their faith and trust in Him alone. So the term the Lord's Table speaks to us of the superabundance of God's provision in Christ for undeserving sinners such as you and I. The terms Lord's Supper and communion, they have a slightly different meaning, but suffice it to say they both relate to fellowship and with intimacy with Christ. And the Lord's Supper is an occasion when we ought to enjoy a special closeness to our Lord. And if you remember, it was to the lukewarm church at Laodicea that Jesus extended his invitation. In Revelation 3.20, we read, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. That is so often today used in uh, the context of of evangelism. That verse has nothing whatsoever to do with evangelism. That is the Lord Jesus Christ extending a call to the church at Laodicea. And the emphasis there is upon fellowship with Christ that these people were missing because of the coldness of their spiritual, spiritually lukewarm hearts. And the Lord's Supper is an opportunity for us to restore our communion with the Lord and to renew the warm intimacy with Him that that ought to characterize a believer's daily life. And a picture of dining together with Jesus should also remind us that uh, the Lord's Supper is not merely a ritual that we uh, mechanically go through without giving it much thought. It should be a time when we linger with the Lord just enjoying His gracious provision for our spiritual needs. And finally, the term breaking bread, which is used for the Lord's table in Acts 2.42, is a descriptive title with, with a double meaning. It refers directly to Jesus' death upon the cross, where His body was, in one sense, broken for our redemption. But it also reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. The bread of God, John said, who comes down from heaven and gives light to the world there in John 6.33. In other words, the Lord Jesus is the source of all spiritual life and sustenance. I mean, as Peter said to Jesus in John 6.68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so the Lord's Supper also reminds us of the fact that we are utterly dependent upon Christ for salvation preservation, and for blessing in this life and glory in the next. With all of this in mind, let's get into the text now. And this is really going to be more of uh, of a topical, uh, as it would be a strict exposition. But notice verse 23, where Paul begins to give instruction. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. And Paul is making it clear for us that, that what he's teaching on the Lord's Supper is not merely his own opinion. He is passing on to them instruction that is far more authoritative than any man's opinion. What he had to say about the Lord's Supper had come to him by direct revelation from the risen Lord himself. You say, how do we know? Well, he says, I received it from the Lord. You see, Paul was not at the Last Supper. And as far as we know, he had never been told what went on in the upper room by any of the other apostles. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul says that he didn't learn what he knew of Christ and Christianity from any man. No apostle taught it to him. And he uses the same language that he uses here later in chapter 15, where he says that he delivered to them the gospel which he also received from the Lord which in Galatians he clearly says he didn't receive from any other man. And neither did Paul read about the Last Supper in one of the four Gospels, because most conservative scholars agree that 1 Corinthians was most likely written before any of the Gospels. So what we have here is the first biblical record of the institution of the Lord's Supper. The communion service is so important. It is so important to the Lord that Jesus himself instructed Paul as to how it was to be celebrated. So that should make us sit up and take notice and realize that this isn't just a ritual that we go through. This is a very serious matter. Paul says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. Now, on the night when he was betrayed gives us the historical setting, which many of the believers uh, in Corinth may not have known, because as I just said, the Gospels had not yet been written. And so it was against the black backdrop of his betrayal by one of his own, by Judas Iscariot, that Jesus instructed or instituted the Lord's Supper. And next, Paul tells us about the attitude which was uppermost in the mind of our Lord as he instituted that first Lord's Supper. Look back at verse 23 and then the first part of verse 24. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he gave thanks. His thanksgiving was not for the bread as a source of nourishment for His physical body, but rather for the bread as a symbol of the atoning sacrifice that was going to take place the following day. At the moment when all of the powers of hell were gathering against Him, as He faced the agonies of the Garden of Gethsemane and then the cross itself, the Lord Jesus gave thanks. There was no rebellion against the will of the Father, No complaining about the suffering that he would endure. Only thankfulness to the Father for his great grace and and mercy toward undeserving sinners. The Lord gave thanks for his own impending suffering and death. I mean, the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. But the point is simply that the Lord's attitude was one of thanks. And by this, he set an important example for believers, for you and I, to follow as we celebrate communion. Our attitude should also be one of thanks and praise to God who loved us so much that he gave his son to die for us. Our hearts should be full of thanks and praise that Jesus loved us and gave himself for us, shedding his blood in order to save us from the penalty of our own sin. You see, there's no place for pride at the Lord's table. No place for pride. Only the grateful thanks of sinners who deserve nothing but received everything by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus gave thanks, and so we should too. Let's look back at the verses where we see now the elements used in the Lord's Supper, and we've already alluded to it. And so when our Lord took the bread and the wine and, and said, this is my body, you know, this is my blood, he obviously was not speaking literally. He clearly meant these things are symbolic of what I am going to do by my death on the cross. And he meant from that point on, these elements should be a symbol and memorial of His body killed and, and in that sense broken on the cross and of His blood shed for the redemption of our sin. The symbolic elements of bread and wine, like those of the Passover feast, were intended to help us remember this act that purchased our salvation. Jesus' death was a sacrificial death to make atonement for man's sin. His body was broken in death so that his blood could be shed. His life was sacrificed and offered as a ransom for our souls. As Jesus said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But it's Jesus' use of the word cup in verse 25 that I want to draw your attention to. I mean, his use of the word cup is is significant. Did he simply mean the cup as something to contain the wine? Or was he alluding to the symbolic meaning of the word cup in Scripture? He certainly used the word symbolically a few hours later in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I mean, it was the thought of drinking the cup of God's wrath against sin that caused Jesus the crushing sorrow recorded in verse 38 of Matthew 26 when He said there in the garden, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And The sorrow wasn't caused by the thought of death because Jesus uh, didn't have the problem with death that we do. He knew death would restore him to the glory that he had with the Father before creation. He knew that he was going to conquer death, hell, and the grave. Jesus' sorrow was caused by what was involved in his death. And that is what the word cup refers to in his prayer in Gethsemane. I mean, drinking the cup is a phrase in the Old Testament that refers predominantly to God's punishment, his wrath against human sin. Isaiah said in Isaiah fifty-one seventeen, Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 25, verses 15 and 16, Thus the Lord God, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending upon them. So drinking the cup refers primarily to God's punishment of human sin. It refers to His wrath. You see, the Lord Jesus had always known that one day this cup of God's wrath for human sin would be put into His hands. And on the night before His crucifixion, Jesus felt the terrible implications and consequences of it. He would be made sin for us as God laid on Him our sin and guilt. I mean, God made Him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be a sin for us. That in some way that we cannot begin to understand, He was also separated from and forsaken by His Father. The Lord Jesus endured the consequences of sin to the utmost extent. In fact, one man said so fully that he make himself one with sinful man that he entered into the dreadful state of being forsaken by God that is the lot of unforgiven sinners. He died our death so that we might live to God. And if all of this was in the mind of Jesus when He spoke of the cup in the Garden of Gethsemane, it would be really surprising if it was not also in His mind in the upper room as He spoke of His blood that would be shed upon the cross. And the point is simply that the cup in the communion service should therefore remind us of the enormous cost that our salvation was to the Lord. It is symbolic of the fact that Christ would be made sin for us, that He died the death that we deserve so that we might live to God. But by the same token, it reminds us also of the riches of His grace and how how blessed all those who trust in His atoning sacrifice are. And so the bread and wine are are symbolic of what the Lord Jesus did by His death on the cross. His life was sacrificed and offered as a ransom for our souls. This cup, Jesus said, is the new covenant in my blood. It is a covenant made in his blood. The new covenant made in his blood. In other words, it is a covenant put into effect by his atoning death. You see, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin but the precious blood of Jesus Christ can and does. And Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. You see, on the cross, the new covenant promised by God in Jeremiah 600 years earlier, and even before that to Noah and Abraham, is ratified in the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, in the same way that a signature with ink confirms or validates a contract or promise today, Jesus signed on the dotted line of the new covenant, so to speak, with his shed blood represented by the communion cup. The new covenant or agreement between God and man was ratified once and for all by Jesus' blood or by His atoning death. And so the cup we take at the communion service is the symbol of both the blood of Jesus Christ and the covenant made in that blood. It is a sign to us of the grace of God and and the guarantee of our salvation. Christ signed on the dotted line. It's a guarantee of our salvation. Christ guarantees it. So the cross is now central in all of God's dealings with man. It, it transforms everything. And this is why the Lord Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the bread, the wine, the cup, the covenant all remind us that God became a man and died a substitutionary atoning death that man might be reconciled to God. And the primary purpose, then, of the Lord's Supper is to remind us of Christ's death for sinners. It's to remind us of what he accomplished upon the cross. In verse 24, after taking the bread, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. After taking the cup of wine, he said in verse 25, do this as often as you drink it, what? In remembrance of me. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. But you see, if we've never made peace with God, the peace that was made for sinners through His blood shed on the cross, and we have nothing to remember because we cannot remember what we have never experienced. But for all those who put their faith and trust in Christ alone as Lord and Savior, at the communion service, we are called upon by the Lord to remember what happened nearly 2,000 years ago. So how do we do this in a meaningful way? You know, how can we remember without it becoming nothing more than a formal ceremony? How can we prevent the Lord's Supper from becoming merely a habit and an empty, meaningless ritual? Well, the answer is to realize that we're not called simply to remember a historical event. I mean, the death of Jesus Christ certainly is that, but it's, it's far, far more. For us as believers, it's something that has become and remains a deeply personal experience. I and mean, as believers in Christ, we're remembering the Son of God who loved us, gave Himself for us. I mean, this is a reality that has profound meaning for us and should have a powerful influence upon our daily lives. I mean, this is personal. Jesus said, This is my body which is for you. Now, the words for you obviously have a direct reference to the disciples who were present that night. But they're not limited to the disciples. How do you know? Well, when the Lord commanded communion to be observed regularly until he returns, he was clearly expanding the application of it to all believers in every generation. For you. So this includes us. It includes you and I. This is my body, Jesus said, which is for you. For you. And I don't think we realize the depth of love in those words. For you. I think it was Spurgeon that said, those must be the two most beautiful words in the whole of the Bible. For you. Jesus is proclaiming that He was giving His life as the incarnate Son of God for you and for me. I mean, all that He was, all that He did was for you and for me. And so the death of Christ 2,000 years ago is not, not simply a historical event. It involves us as believers directly and personally. The Lord Jesus said that by his death he was doing something for us of which the bread and wine were reminders. On the cross he took responsibility for our sin and guilt. God laid on him all our violations of his holy law. Jesus became a curse for us and he did it so that we might be rescued from our sin and rebellion and become the children of God. One man said, as Christians, we are to live our lives in the shadow of the cross. In other words, the declaration made at Calvary of the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ is to be remembered in such a way that it touches every facet of our lives. And so when we come to take communion, it's not only a past event that must fill our thoughts, but it's also a present reality, a present experience of the love of God to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. And the communion service will never become a meaningless formality when our minds are focused upon the living Christ and we remember all that He has accomplished for us upon the cross. The Lord's Supper is a remembrance that we're to practice until Jesus comes again. Look at verse 26. Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And so every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, we are in fact preaching the great truths of the gospel. It's a wordless proclamation of the gospel. We're proclaiming the fact of the Lord's death. We're proclaiming to our fellow believers that our trust is in Christ alone. We are also proclaiming to the powers of darkness that Jesus Christ has made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over Satan's sin and death. I mean, every time we come together and take communion, we are reminding ourselves and the watching world that the death of Jesus Christ was an event that really happened and it changed the course of human history. The Lord's Supper also declares to the world that we are not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. By it, we also proclaim the effect of that of Christ's death, of the effect that Christ's death has had on us personally. So it's not just a ceremony, a ritual of the church. It's a glorious declaration that because Christ died for us, we are now new creations in Christ, united to Him by the power of His love and the indwelling Holy Spirit. And how long are we to continue to proclaim this wordless, uh, or how long are we to continue this wordless proclamation of the gospel? Look at the end of verse 26, until he comes, until he comes, until the Lord Jesus comes, until he returns in great power and glory. One man said, we do not remember what Christ has done for us simply as an exercise in nostalgia, nor only as a testimony to the present benefits of the gospel. We are to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a declaration that Christ will come again. Thus, the communion service embraces the whole panorama of the Christian faith, past, present, and future. So the Lord's Supper is is a constant witness to the truth about Christ's return. And so it should be a service then of of confidence and, and hope. When we celebrate communion, we should be anticipating the Lord's return. I mean, we should be thinking about the day when we will actually see the Lord Jesus and faith become sight. I mean, the victory that Christ won for us will have its glorious fulfillment at the second coming. As Paul told Titus, we're to be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And that is certainly what the return of Christ is to us. It is the blessed hope of the church and of the individual believer. And so when we take communion, our hearts and minds should be filled with the joy of the blessed hope, the certainty that Jesus is coming again to take us home to be with Him in heaven forever. And that is the ultimate end of our salvation. When the Lord returns and takes us to be with Him forever, then there will be no need to remember because we're going to be with Him. There'll be no need to look forward because He'll be with us and we'll see Him and be like Him. And we'll go on for all of eternity proclaiming the praises of the Lamb upon His throne. So at the Lord's Supper, we're remembering Christ, proclaiming His death, and looking forward to His return. Celebrating communion, loved ones, is a, is a great privilege and a great blessing. And I think we, we, we just so often take it too lightly. But it is a great privilege. But as you know at Corinth, this privilege is being greatly abused. And that is why Paul goes on to warn the Corinthians. And we're just going to move through these last verses real, very quickly. But, uh, I mean, we should actually be doing two messages Uh, from this passage, but uh, there's some things here that just need to be said. Paul warns the Corinthians, look at verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now understand, Paul is not saying that a person must be worthy to partake, because this, this would exclude all Christians because all are sinners, Right? We're saints, but simultaneously we, we still sin. We're still sinners. And there are many conscientious and sincere people who feel that they're unworthy because they have a great consciousness of their sin. But Paul isn't saying that uh, someone has to live a flawless and perfect life before you can take communion because no one can do that. I mean, even with all of the the enabling the Holy Spirit gives us, there are times of failure in our lives. Times of great weakness and frustration, confusion, and and sometimes deliberate sin. And so we're all unworthy to partake of communion. Unworthy in the sense that we're unworthy of any of the Lord's mercy or kindness. But our worthiness is not the issue here. That's not the issue. Paul is not speaking about our personal unworthiness. I mean, when we've been cleansed from our own sin by the blood of Christ, we can come to God in all the worthiness of His Son, Jesus Christ. We are acceptable to God in the Beloved, in Christ. And Paul is speaking here not of personal unworthiness, but rather of personal conduct. He's speaking about coming to take communion in an unworthy manner. I mean, to come to the table in an unworthy manner is to come with the wrong state of mind. I mean, the Corinthians were coming to the table of the Lord with a flippant, selfish, divisive, sin-tolerating attitude and, and behavior. I mean, every Christian feels unworthy when he comes to the Lord's table. You know, but the believers found acceptance in the worthy one, and in Christ we're worthy to come to the table. You say, well, what does that even mean, coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner? What does that even mean? Well, there are many ways a, a Christian can come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner today. You can come and during the time of communion think about everything but Christ. You you may be occupied with the business of the week or recalling the latest joke or or thinking about the Sunday afternoon meal or anxious to get home to turn on the ball game or uh, looking to see what the lady in the seat in front of you is wearing. We take communion in an unworthy manner if we're not thinking of the Savior and His work simply going through a, a ritualistic service with no reality. You know, it's just no more than a, a ritual to you. It's something you, you know, you do. So your, your heart and mind are not in it. You just go through the motions with no emotion. You take it lightly rather than seriously. You, know, you can come in an unworthy manner by uh, wrongly believing that communion somehow in and of itself saves or keeps one saved. You come in an unworthy manner if you come with bitterness or hatred in your heart towards someone. You come in an unworthy manner if, if you come to the Lord's table without preparing for it, in other words, without searching your own heart for the seek, your seek, those secret sins and, and confessing them to the Lord. Listen, the Lord's table is a serious, serious matter. And our thoughts and attention should be riveted on the person of Christ. When we come to take communion, one man said, if we come with anything less than the loftiest thoughts of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and anything less than total love for our brothers and sisters in Christ, we come in an unworthy manner. You say, well, what's the big deal? Well, if we come to take communion in an unworthy manner, look what Paul says, look back at verse 17, or look at verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What does that mean? What does it mean to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord? Well, one commentator put it this way. To trample our country's flag is not to dishonor a piece of cloth, but rather It is to dishonor the country that it represents. That's a whole different issue. To come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner doesn't simply dishonor the ceremony. It dishonors the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Coming in an unworthy manner means we become guilty of dishonoring His body and blood which represent His total gracious life and work for us, His suffering and death on our behalf. And we become guilty of mocking and treating with indifference the very person of Christ. Well, how do we keep from coming in an unworthy manner and and being guilty of, of the body and blood of the Lord? Well, look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Well, what does that mean? To examine yourself. Well, it means to ask God to search our hearts. I mean to examine our lives, our motives, our attitudes toward Him and toward other believers. It means to examine our hearts to discover if there's anything there that shouldn't be there. It's bringing our lives under the private scrutiny of the Lord Himself. Asking Him, Lord. Is there anything in me that is unpleasing to you? Search me. Try me. Know me. It means handle your sin honestly. Don't try to cover it up. Don't try to persuade yourself that it's not there or that it's no big thing. Sin is a big thing to God. And so we need to bring it before Him and admit it to Him and then let him cleanse us. I mean, sin in our lives should be confessed. And so perhaps this may mean a restitution of some kind needs to be made. Perhaps it means there's an apology that should be offered to someone we have slandered or offended. As one man said, we need to make sure that uh, we're in a proper state of soul. So the communion service is an opportunity for honest self-examination before the Lord. Which means then the communion service is a special time for the purifying of the church as we all individually examine our lives before him and deal with the sin that is there. And then Paul gives a warning of the consequences of of participating in this way in an unworthy manner. Look at verse 29. Here's the actual consequences. For if anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment to himself. Wow. Now, if it was just me saying this, you could just throw it out the window. This is not me saying this. This is the word of the Lord. And the word judgment here has the meaning of chastening. And it refers to the Lord's chastisement or His discipline of disobedient, you know, unrepentant believers. When a believer takes communion in an unworthy manner, they're not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, uh, they're treating the Lord, His life, His suffering and death with indifference. And they can bring God's discipline upon themselves because of it. And God disciplines some of the Corinthian believers severely. Look what he says in verse 30. That is why many of you, many of the believers in the church of Corinth, are weak and ill, and look at the last part, and some have died. Some have died. In other words, because the Corinthians were taking communion in an unworthy manner, God allowed some of them to become weak and sick, and He actually took some of, actually had some of them die. He, he took them home to heaven. They had rejected God's tender, loving warnings and discipline. They knowingly persisted in unrepentant sin while at the same time coming and partaking of communion, thus living a flat-out lie, dishonoring Christ. And they continued in this to the point that God said to some of them, Look, I can't trust you anymore. I can't trust you down there. I'm going to bring you home where I can keep an eye on you. That's radical. Radical. And it's nothing to be taken lightly. Verse 31, but, but, in contrast to that, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. If we exercise self-judgment, we deal with our sin. It won't be necessary for God to chasten us. And of course, this just involves being honest. It involves confessing our sin, our wrong attitudes, our motives. And of course, we know that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if we exercise self-judgment, it won't be necessary for God to chasten us. Verse 32, but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. This is how we know the word judged in verse 29 uh, means chastisement and not judgment because he says when we are judged by the Lord we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. If we come in an unworthy manner and we don't judge ourselves and God judges us it's not for condemnation. It's for the very opposite. It's to bring us back to him. God often uses pain in our lives to bring us back to him, to get our attention, to bring us back to him. And so God disciplines us to bring us back. It's it's to encourage us and others in the church to choose holiness rather than sin. Because you see, God loves us too much to allow us to go on in sin. And the scripture tells us in in Hebrews chapter 12, whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And God loves us, and as his children, he will discipline us because of that love. And God's loving but firm discipline uh, distinguishes us, his children, from the unsaved world, who will be condemned. But God will not allow His people to be condemned with the world. That's that's why He brings divine discipline. And so Paul is saying here that if we examine ourselves and confess our sin, coming before the Lord in a manner worthy of the occasion, remembering with love and adoration the supreme sacrifice that Jesus made for us remembering the awfulness of his death under the wrath of God and the power of his life to to raise us from our own spiritual death, we're not going to come in an unworthy manner. And we'll avoid the the chastening hand of the Lord. We're not going to have to worry that, that God will discipline us like he did the Corinthians because they wouldn't examine themselves. So in closing, we need to remember that In the communion service, we are remembering, we are proclaiming, and we are looking forward. And all of these things are centered on Christ. And we do them because we love Him. And the communion service is is an expression of this love. The communion service is a fellowship service in which we have fellowship with Christ and and with one another. And the Lord's Supper brings us together as sinners saved by grace. Look, that is the basis of our communion. It's the only source of our fellowship. And so we're to treasure and, and we're to cultivate our oneness in Christ. Because in doing so, we reveal and honor Jesus Christ himself. And so, loved ones, don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. Don't take the Lord's Supper lightly. It is one of the most precious gifts that Christ has given to his church. And we want to partake of it together this morning. But before we do, just a couple of things. First of all, It needs to be stated that the Lord's Supper is a public act of worship by the gathered family of those who believe in Jesus Christ, the church. So, this is a communion, the communion service, the Lord's table is a family meal. It's a family meal. It's not an act for unbelievers. Unbelievers may be present this morning, and indeed we hope, hope some are, and we, we welcome you to be present. But to partake of communion, you must belong to the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, there are some churches that won't allow anyone to take communion who is not a member of that church. I don't believe that's biblical. Communion should be open to anyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ. But it's not open to unbelievers. If a believer in Christ can come, uh, can take communion in an unworthy manner and invite the discipline of the Lord, Then we would also have to say if an unbeliever participates in communion, he is certainly, he or she is certainly taking it in an unworthy manner, and they would they would provoke not just God's discipline, because he only disciplines his children, they would be in danger of God's judgment. It's a serious matter. So we're going to take communion together this morning. The elders are going to pass out the elements as the worship team leads us in a song, and so please hold those elements, and we're going to take them together at the end of the song. During the song, uh, you know, we have opportunity to take our lives before the Lord. Uh, Take our lives before the Lord and ask Him, Lord, search me, try me, know me. Lord, is there something in my life that shouldn't be there, something not pleasing to you? some secret sin, some sin that I know I'm not repenting of or that I know I need to repent of. So we need to ask the Lord to search our hearts and then to confess our sin. Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro. We hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California 96073. You can also email us through the website at CCredding.com. Thank you for listening